Well, good morning, Evergreen. Uh, greetings from Grace Community Church. Pastor John MacArthur, my pastor, and uh, the Master's University and Seminary, where I have the privilege of serving. Um, just a joy to be with you, and it's true that I have enjoyed a great deal of benefit from being involved with your pastor over these years. Uh, I was saying to Mako earlier and some of the others that hosted and greeted me as I came in this morning that uh, Rocky and I have had the privilege of playing college football back in the day, and well, that's not necessarily unusual. A lot of guys play college football. Not many guys play college football and end up in pastoral ministry, but even more than that, uh, Rocky has a heart for uh, playing sports for the glory of God. And uh, I work with the student-athletes at the Master's University with the intention of being more than the athlete who plays or prays before the game and after the game and doesn't cuss during the game, calling that Christian athletics, but rather our heartbeat is that we would play for the glory of God so that people see the one who is worthy, they understand that we have an appetite and a desire to honor the Lord in ways that cannot be done unless your motivation is to glorify Him, not just by playing hard, but by drawing attention to Him for His honor and for His glory. And so Rocky and I share that passion, and uh, I have enjoyed getting to know Him, His heartbeat for the church, and uh, I'm glad to be here today. I, I do normally teach a fellowship group at Grace Community Church on Sunday mornings, but I do enjoy being out and engaged in the body of Christ and engaged with the people of God for the encouragement of the churches that represent the values, convictions, and priorities that are blatantly biblical. And that's becoming increasingly rare today, and I'm grateful to be a part of this fellowship to encourage you in God's Word. So with that said, let me invite you to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20. Excuse me, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. We're going to start in chapter 5. Our subject today is meant to energize and encourage you. It's rooted in two blatant observations. As I noted at the outset, I do periodically have the opportunity on Sundays to be out and about various places around the country, encouraging God's people, preaching God's Word. And this topic this morning is motivated by two consistent observations, decline and detachment. The culture is declining, and the church is detaching. The culture is destructive and rapidly declining. The church is discouraged and seemingly withdrawing. I don't think we need to do much today to validate the idea that culture is in decline. The world in which you grew up in, the world which our children are growing up in, is different than it used to be. And I think what troubles many of us, and this is what I hear from God's people, what do we do now? The rapid deterioration and decline of our culture is so impactful, so sobering, it's difficult to recognize, is there anything we can do as the body of Christ, besides praying as we gather together and privately, is there anything that we can do to influence and impact? 
And this morning is about impact. It's meant to encourage you that as a Christian, you can have practical, intentional, impactful, difference-making influence. You are not impotent. You may be impotent, but you do not have to be impotent. This is a call for helping a world that is hurting and benefiting a broken world versus withdrawing and wishing for a better world or trying to survive until Jesus returns and fixes the things that He has promised to fix and make a whole new world. What are we supposed to do while we're waiting? Influence impactful, intentional, eternal influence for the glory of God. Listen, the metrics of a healthy culture someone has rehearsed as honesty, integrity, morality, security, unity, community, stability, the virtues of a healthy culture. And by these metrics, you would have to agree to me that our culture isn't honest. We don't tell the truth. Matter of fact, it's hard to find anybody who tells the truth faithfully and regularly unless they're in a pulpit preaching God's Word. The news media, those who represent us by way of politicians, it is hard to know even people in the medical community. I was with someone yesterday. We were talking about some of the restrictions and some of the requirements and the reasons for the pandemic and the reactions to the pandemic. And the lady said to me yesterday in the store that I was uh, frequenting, she said, I don't know who to believe. I don't think she's alone in that. It's hard to know who to believe. Honesty, we tell the truth, is a virtue of the culture that is healthy. It's hard to find those we can trust to tell us the truth, regardless of what the issue is, unless the Bible's being taught and proclaimed. Integrity, we do what we say. We are what we are privately, even as we represent ourselves what we are publicly Morality, we have moral standards, we live by them as a culture. Security, we're safe to walk down the street at night. Unity, we're committed to harmony as a culture. I think this is the most obvious downward trend in our culture, the distance and the divisiveness of people, groups, and individuals, isolation, not community. We're not connected in productive and relational community relationships. It's one of the beauties of the church, by the way. With all that's going on in the isolation of our culture, one of the oasis islands of normalcy is the body of Christ coming together in recognition that the king of the church has called his people to gather, to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. It is a relational community. It's a church family that we get to enjoy today. This is rare in our culture. There are people who haven't been out of their house for weeks, some months, isolated. Community is essential for healthy culture. Stability. We have a sense of calm and anticipation. There's a cultural predictability about what's coming. Wouldn't you agree with me that it is hard to predict what's coming next? So to that reality, a declining, rapidly deteriorating culture My question is, what is the church supposed to do? 
Is the church to withdraw, to bubble, and to bunker, to hunker down, to gather in exclusive environments like this until things get better or until the Lord returns? Listen, I want to argue today that by virtue of what we're about to read, there needs to be in your heart a recognition and a compelling conviction that on the authority of the Word of God and on the words of the Son of God, you are a change agent in the culture today that can have, impot- can have potency and power to affect meaningful change. You are something. Therefore, you need to be something. And listen to me, and the guarantee is your life will mean something, not just in eternity, but right now, here in this community or wherever your neighborhood is or your workplace is, you can be a difference maker. You can be a world changer because of who Jesus says you are, if you are what He says you are. He pours out His heart in Matthew chapter 5, and I want to begin here. This is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who has ever lived. It's the King of everything, Jesus Christ, as He begins His ministry, talking about the reality of the kingdom of God. Chapter 5, 6, and 7, the book of Matthew the Sermon on the Mount. He is calibrating reality. He is correcting perceptions. The greater Moses, Jesus Christ, will famously say, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. In other words, no matter what you've heard, this is the way it is. This is reality. Notice verse 1, recognizing the need for a dose of reality for the multitude of humanity. Verse 1, Jesus saw the crowds, chapter 5. He went up on the mountain. Now watch this. After he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, he sat down is not just to say he took a seat. It, is, it does mean he took a seat. But it's more than that. It's a figure of speech meant to say he is about to speak in his sitting with authoritative capacity, official capacity, like a sitting judge, like a king ex-cathedra from the chair. He is speaking officially and with authority. He sat down saying, this is the way it is in my regal authority on the throne of this mountain top. I am sitting and I will declare the way it is. Notice verse 2, he opened his mouth. This is another figure of speech. He sat down in authority and he opened his mouth. Has to do with not just that he's talking. It's, a, it's an idiom which means he is pouring out his heart with passion. He opened his mouth, indicating a passionate, from the heart, weighty words. I am the king, and what I am about to say in my kingly authority is critical. It's essential. It's reality. When he showed up, when Jesus was incarnated and began his ministry, he says the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. I'm here. 
And as a result of His presence and His ministry, the kingdom of God is on display, and He is rehearsing and defining its reality. He begins, the king, with the kingdom truth related to two things, how to be blessed and how to be a blessing. The Beatitudes, how to be blessed. In the first 12 verses, nine times, Jesus says, blessed are. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemaker, those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. And blessed are you, verse 11, when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. This is and these are the ingredients that attract the blessing of of God in the kingdom of God. This is how to be blessed. But then our focus today is on verses 13, 14, 15, and 16, how to be a blessing. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. The first declaration, you're the salt of the earth, and you as the salt of the earth are to be a blessing to the earth. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. The second figure of speech describing the kingdom citizens of the kingdom of God. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Two figures, two figures of speech, two symbols communicating what a kingdom citizen is. In other words, if you're in the kingdom of God, if you've become a child of God in the family of God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, if you've accepted the the substitutionary satisfaction for your sin through the babe who became a man who died in your place, if you have trusted him, if you've repented of your sin, if you've received him as your Savior and Lord, you are a citizen in the kingdom of God and you are blessed by these means, and you are a blessing by fulfilling the purpose for which He made you. These two figures, salt and light, are indicative of what a Christian is in the kingdom of God. You are, bottom line, because of who you are, a positive and impactful influence on the world. You're to be a blessing. And we're going to focus on one of these two figures for the sake of time. Salt. Salt. Watch the words, verse 13. You are. Do you see that? Not you might be. You are. Present active indicative. It's a declarative statement of reality. This is what you are. You are the salt of the earth. You are today, tomorrow, and every day, and everywhere, 
a salty influence on the culture. You're the salt of the earth. Everyone, everywhere benefits by who and what you are. You are the salt of the earth, benefiting everyone, everywhere. Unless, verse 13 says, unless you're not. Unless you're not salty. If you've become tasteless, you've lost the properties of salt. You've been diluted and derailed and distracted. You're not who Jesus says you are in practical expression. It says, in that case, you're good for nothing. I want that to sit on you for a moment. Good for nothing. Good for nothing that matters to the culture. Good for nothing that benefits the culture. If you've lost your savor, if you've lost your potency, if you've lost your capacity by virtue of distraction or dilution, you're good for nothing except to be tossed out, that's discarded, that's also a figure, no value, or trampled underfoot, contemptible. It's not just the salt was used to harden the soil you walked on. It was an expression that because the salt was no longer salty, it was not valuable, it's discarded. It's contemptible, it is trampled underfoot. Here's a sobering thought. I do believe that part of the loss of influence in our culture is not because people simply disagree with what we say we believe and how we live it out, but rather it's the contempt and the disrespect that goes because we say what we say and we don't live it out. Therefore, what they need, we don't provide. Therefore, what we are, they don't respect. Therefore, what the Christian should be is not valued, but devalued. You are the salt of the earth is a declarative statement of reality. Let me, by way of introduction, summarize this way. Because the world is hurting, and because the world is broken, Every Christian, as a kingdom citizen, should have a compelling conviction. And this is my prayer for you today, that you'll leave Evergreen today with an energizing, convicting conviction that I am something. And therefore, I have a determined intention. I'm going to be what Jesus says I am. I'm resolved, I'm determined, I'm re-upping. I'm going to be what salt should be. And thirdly, that intention and that conviction will be coupled with confident expectation. And that expectation is that my life, whether seen today or someday in the future, my life is and will make a difference. Listen, Evergreen, you are not impotent. You are not without influence. I know it can feel that way. But Jesus says you are something, therefore you need to be something, and the guarantee is your life will mean something eternally. 
And with this figure of salt, Jesus calls his citizens to be four things. I want to talk about what you are and the priorities that are to be promoted for impactful influence. Number one, as salt, you're to be a picture of purity. Salt was white when it was refined. Two, a powerful preservative. Sodium chloride preserves. Three, a provider of pleasure. Salt is a seasoning. Number four, a prompter of thirst. A prompter of passion. Salt makes you thirsty. Now remember, you are these things unless you're not. And if you're not, you need to re-up on the reality of who Jesus says his kingdom citizens are. Now, let me give you a few general contextual cultural observations to help you understand that when Jesus said to this multitude who had gathered to hear him speak, when he said, you are the salt of the earth, let me give you some perspective about what they would have thought when he made that declaration. In the context of the culture to which Jesus said these words, salt was highly valued in the ancient world. The Greeks literally called salt divine. The Latins or the Romans had a kind of jingle that said there's nothing more useful than the sun and salt. Salt was called white gold. It was rare. Taxes and wages were often paid in salt. Roman soldiers were paid in salt, which is where we get the expression, not worth his salt. It referred to a soldier who did not do his duty. He did not live out or fight in a worthy way. One of the greatest compliments you could give was to call someone in that day, you are the salt of the earth. It meant something. It meant that they were living a worthwhile, impactful, valuable, meaningful life. They were a solid citizen, and their life counted. So salt was understood to be valuable and useful. When Jesus is looking at kingdom citizens, people in his kingdom, he's saying, you are the salt of the earth. You're valuable, you're useful. You're rare, you're impactful. You're valuable in a way that no one else is. You are exclusively the salt of the earth. There isn't any other. Jesus was saying by analogy, when you express the qualities of salt, you're highly valuable. So let's talk about the four qualities that characterize and therefore the four priorities of salt. Number one, the first quality has to do with purity. The number one quality related to salt, salt was connected to purity. As I said, if refined, it was brilliant white. It glistened in the sun. The Romans said salt was the purest of all things because it came from the purest of all things, the sun and the sea. Pythagoras in 500 BC said salt is born of the purest of parents, the sun and the sea. Salt was used as a primitive offering to the gods, symbolizing purity in pagan worship and in God's worship of the Old Testament, Leviticus 2.13, every oblation of your meat offering you shall season with salt. Salt was a symbol of purity. 
Listen to 2 Kings 2, 19 through 22, where the prophet Elisha uses salt to represent purity and powerful positive influence. This is 2 Kings 2, 19. Then the men of the city, referencing Jericho, they said to Elisha, behold now, the situation of the city is pleasant. It was called Jericho, the city of palms. It was an oasis in the desert. Its situation, they said, by way of its geography and its natural capacity is pleasant. As my Lord can see. Now listen to this. But the water is bad. The water is impure and the land is unfruitful, barren. So Elisha said, bring me a new jar and put salt in it. So they brought it to him, and he went out to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have purified these waters. There shall not from there these waters come death or unfruitfulness any longer. So the waters have been purified to this day. A new jar, perhaps symbolic of the Christian, the new creation. In the jar, salt. Salt dispensed into the waters, purified the waters, and made the waters fruitful for the land. In a similar way, the Christian is a new creation vessel with purifying salt that needs to be poured into a barren and bad culture. So number one, as the salt of the earth, Christians are to promote purity. They are to inspire the culture by being a picture of purity. As a Christian and a kingdom citizen, you're to be a purifying ingredient to this culture. You're to model morality. You're to be a cultural calibrator. You're to help the world know what right looks like the means by which they measure right words, right attitudes, right actions, right motives. You're the salt of the earth. You're the standard by which the world measures right and wrong. The Christian is to be in the the Christian in, is in the world, but not of the world, John 17. But he is keeping himself unspotted by the world, James 1.27. And he's providing a living picture and standard for the world. Let me say to you, number one, as the salt of the earth, you're to help the world in which you live, the neighbors in which you share life, your family, your friends, your community, you're to provide them an inspiring picture of purity. This is what right speech, this is what right attitudes, this is what right conduct, this is what right motives look like. William Barclay says the Christian must be the person who holds aloft the standard of moral purity in speech and conduct. The Christian is to make the best understood and make doing it credible. Listen to Paul in Titus 2.7. Paul to the Christians, even the young, on the island of Crete. Listen to what he says. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, 
with purity and doctrine, that's the truth, dignified, that's noble, sound in speech, which is above reproach so that the opponent will be put to shame because they have nothing bad to say about us. Turn over, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 4, and let me highlight some categories for you by which to measure yourself and by which to encourage you to consider as you represent purity as a living picture of how a person in the new community and the new humanity of Jesus Christ ought to act and live. You're to put on the new self, Ephesians 2, or Ephesians 4 says, verse 24. Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. You know Ephesians. Ephesians says God has bombastically blessed us. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He atoned for our sin through the ransom price of His only begotten Son. We were released from indebtedness. We were adopted into His family. The Holy Spirit, like an earnest, like a wedding, an engagement ring, guaranteeing a future inheritance. We've been blessed beyond words. We were enemies. We're friends. We were dead and deluded. We're now alive because of the mercies of God. We're the living temple of the, the Lord Himself in the world today, the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're the expression of God in the world, and we ought to live as a new creation, manifesting a new self, verse 24, walking in a manner worthy, chapter 4, verse 1. In the likeness of God, we represent God in the world, His ways, His attitudes, His actions. We're not God. We're representatives of God. We are children of God representing the Father's family. And in that condition, we are to manifest purity in four ways. Speech, conduct, attitude, and motive. You know these words. This is Colossians 4 verse 6. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with what? Salt. Your speech is to be pure, seasoned with salt. It's gracious speech, and it's pure speech. Look at verse 29. Pure speech. Well, let's, let's start with verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth. Pure speech is truthful speech. Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. Don't be angry and sin. Don't steal. Work so that you can share. Verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Unwholesome is rotten, spoiled, impure. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for building up. Edification is soul-strengthening speech. No rotten speech, no impure speech. Speech that doesn't build up is harmful, spoiled, hurtful speech. As a new creation representing God in your speech, you're to tell the truth, and when you speak the truth, you're to speak it in a way that it strengthens the soul. It builds people up. 
It doesn't steal strength. It gives strength according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Christians ought to be edifying speakers, truth-tellers, honoring the Lord with their mouth. Look at chapter 4, verse, or chapter 5, rather, verse 4. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting. These are all words about words, speech. Filthiness means the, the words that are culturally dirty. In our culture, it's the kind of words that you would have had your mouth washed out with soap by an adult who cared for you, said that speech is not culturally acceptable. Not in this house, not in this way. In our culture, we would say cussing. There should be no cussing Christians. No silly talk has to do with shallow speech, morologia. Logia is the word for word. Moro, moro is moron, moronic speech. The speech of foolish people, shallow talk. Think social media. Think tabloids by the checkout counter. Think about things that are meaningless, irrelevant, shallow. Things that ought not to be said in public. There should be no speech like that from a kingdom citizen. There ought to be no cussing from a kingdom citizen. And then this third word in verse 4, coarse jesting, is sexual innuendo. It's where you say words that have double meanings. A meaning that is carnal and vulgar and inappropriate. A Christian, listen to me, is to speak nobly, honorably. No cussing, no silly talk, shallow speech, and no sexual innuendo. Our words need to be edifying and noble. Our conduct is to be moral and honorable. Chapter 5, verse 3. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. If you're a saint in the kingdom of God, these things cannot be true of you. It's not proper. You're the salt of the earth. You're a picture of purity. You can't live immorally. You can't talk vulgarly, and you can't live immorally. Immorality is the word pornea. It's the general word for both the witnessing of an image that's pornographic to the actual action of pornography, which is adultery and immorality. You need to be honorable, young and old. The marriage bed is undefiled. Christians need to be holy in their home, sanctified in their heart. Listen, the way the world knows how people are to relate in marriage and in relationship is because of what they see in the kingdom of God's people. How we walk, how we talk, moral and honorable. Sensuality has to do with the being driven by passions of the flesh. Greed is obvious. It's materialism and the idea that things can provide me satisfaction. They become a means of idolatry. I'm chasing them. It must not even be named among you. Conduct that is moral and honorable Turn over to Philippians chapter 2, and I want to talk about attitudes. Flip over just a couple of pages to the right. 
pure attitudes. Because there's a parallel thought. Here the figure has to do with light, not salt. But the idea is similar. And you can feel it. Verse 14, do all things, chapter 2, Paul to the Philippians, do all things without grumbling. That's complaining. That's whining. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's arguing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That means be positive, not complaining. Be peaceful, not disputing, not arguing. Why? Look at what it says in verse 15. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, think kingdom citizens, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among you whom you appear as what? Lights in the world. You're a picture of purity. You're a light on what's right. Attitudes matter. I used to say to my family, attitude is everything. And you don't show a good attitude until you're in a bad attitude situation. Anyone can have a good attitude in a good attitude situation. But what defines the Christian is the attitude they have in a bad attitude situation. Listen, you you live in the world I live in. There's a lot of reasons to have a bad attitude, and it's not just traffic on the 5 or the 10 or the 210 or the 605 or whatever it is you take. There are a lot of triggers to cause me to grumble and complain. The Christian is to do all things without grumbling or arguing. We're to be positive. We're to be peaceful. We're a picture of pure attitudes, not just pure words, not just pure moral conduct. We're a picture of pure attitudes. Listen to Mark 9, verse 50. Salt is good, but if salt has become unsalty, with what will it be made salty again? Listen to Jesus in Mark 9. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Because salt involves peace. Fourthly and finally, it involves motive. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 5, pure motives, worshipful and helpful, honoring to God and a blessing to people. Listen to Paul, 1 Thessalonians 2 5, where he talked about his motives. I never came with flattering speech. I didn't come telling you things you wanted to hear so you would give me things that I wanted to have. Flattery is inflating someone's ego to secure from them with your words what you want from them. Flattery is manipulation. Flattery is to tell someone what they want to hear so you can get what you want to have. Because it's not about them, not about building them up when you flatter them. It's about inflating them so they will build you up. It's about you, not them. Paul said, I didn't come with flattering speech. It wasn't about me. It was about God and it was about you. I never came with flattering speech nor with a pretext for greed. I didn't want anything from you, not physical, not social, I didn't come for the glory of men. I came for God and for your blessing and benefit. That's pure motive. Listen, as the salt of the earth, your words, your morality, your conduct, 
your attitudes and your motives tell the world what right ought to look like. You're the salt of the earth, unless you're not. And if you're not salty, it is very difficult to restore the savor that ought to be yours. It's hard. And the world will look at that denial of pure words, conduct, and action and say, you know what, that person is not good for anything. They're not valuable. They're tossed out. They're contemptible, not respectable. They're trampled underfoot. Category number one, you're the salt of the earth. Don't be like Proverbs 25, like the trampled spring in a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. Instead of being a source of blessing a spring, you become a a toxic source instead of a blessing. We need to be intelligently unselfish in order to honor the Lord and to honor the ways that magnify Him. Number two, as the salt of the earth, number two, you're not just a picture of purity, you're a powerful preservative. Turn over to Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. The second thing that you must do to have an impactful and eternal influence is to protect people and society by being a powerful preservative. The second quality of salt has to do with preservation. What made salt valuable and extraordinarily needful in a world without refrigeration is salt's capacity to preserve the value of things. Salt was commonly used to keep things from going bad. Meat was soaked in salt. It was used to preserve meat, to extend its viability its benefit, to inhibit decay, to help it resist rot. Without it, good and valuable things were rapidly corrupted. Salt was good because it was valuable in preserving the value of things. And in a similar way, Christians, by your presence, should prevent, curb, and inhibit society's corruption and evil's rotting influence. Listen, all it takes for evil to prevail, someone has said, is for good men to do nothing. I'm going to argue also for Christians not to produce the influence they're capable of producing. Part of the reason our culture looks the way it looks is the absence of influence. Salt is something, and when salt is on something, it affects something. Two big ideas in powerful preservative. Number one, potency. Number two, proximity. Salt has to be potent and it has to be present. It has to be potent and it has to be in it and on it to influence it. Look at Luke chapter 14, verse 34. Jesus talking about salt. Salt, therefore, salt is good. It's valuable, it's productive, it's beneficial. But if even salt has become tasteless, 
with what will it be seasoned? Now, do you see the words, or the word at the beginning of verse 34, therefore? Therefore is a connective word. It connects this statement about salt being good to what preceded it. What preceded it? What was he talking about when he says salt is good? What he was talking about is Christian discipleship, Christ's first discipleship. Large crowds, verse 25, were going along with Jesus, and he turned and said to them something about Christian discipleship. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. If you want to be my disciple, you have to love me by comparison, so much so that love for them would look like hate. He's not saying don't love your mother and don't love your children. He's saying love me significantly more. It's Christ and your love for him over all your people, the people that matter to you. Christ's first discipleship is I love Jesus Christ. My affection, my adoration, my dedication to Him is greater than anything and anyone. Not just my people, but my own passions, my own life. Whoever does not carry his own cross, he cannot come after me, cannot be my disciple. He's got to love me more than he loves his own life. And then he says in verse 33, so that none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. So your affections, your passions, your people, your priorities, your possessions, Christ first discipleship, verse 34, therefore, salt is good. Salty Christians are Jesus first Christians. They're Jesus above family and friends. They're Jesus above your own passions and personal priorities. They're Jesus above all my possessions. It's Jesus first Christianity. Jesus first Christianity is potent Christianity. You can't come into a church and sing worship songs and then not worship. You can't say Jesus is God and Lord. You can't declare His high station and priority, God with us, God among us, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who saved us. You can't say who He is and not display by your life how valuable He is. That's tasteless, not tasty. Potency has to do with Jesus first Christianity. You're the salt of the earth unless you're not. And if you're a picture of purity, you're a powerful preservative if you're potent. That's why Jesus says, count the cost. Hey, following me, trading everything for me is not without cost. So consider the cost. Do you want to invest your life, lose your life to find it? That makes you potent. That makes you powerful, which leads us to the second criteria of being a preservative, powerful. It has to be in it or on it. Proximity. Notice verse 35. If it's tasteless, that is, if it's not potent, it is useless. 
watch this, either for the soil or for the manure pile. And then Jesus goes on to say it is thrown out. It's not valuable because it's lost its potency. But if it is potent, it's good for the soil and for the manure pile. Soil meaning when properly dosed, salt is a mineral which helps things grow. Good salt properly dosed is a promoter of growth. It's a fertilizer. The things in culture that are virtuous and good multiply when there's salt added, potent salt. The manure pile is obvious. Salt is a disinfectant. Before flushing toilets, there were canisters of salt. And the salt with a a scoop was placed on the manure pile, not to promote growth, but to inhibit corruption. Salt was put on it to inhibit germs and corruption like a disinfectant. Salt was put in it in order to promote growth. You're the salt of the earth. If you're a Jesus-first disciple, if you're Jesus over my people, my passions, my possessions, you're powerful, and you need to be penetratingly present. You need to be in it or on it to affect it. Salt in a shaker doesn't do anything. Salt has to be shaken or dispensed onto whatever it is seeking to influence. And the more it's desiring or the more influence is desired, the more closely penetrating and practically present you need to be. You need to be in it and on it to affect it. Listen, here's the second big idea. You're the salt of the earth if you're a Jesus-first Christian. And if you're a Jesus-first Christian engaged in the world you want to influence. I want to ask this question. If you're going to be a disinfectant, and if you're going to be a promoter of what is positive, the virtues of the culture, you must be engaged. Where are you constructively practically engaged with the world you want to influence. Now, here's an observation. Many Christians are bubbled and bunkered. They're bubbled in Christian communities. Listen, you need church. You need small groups. You need adult learning in the Word of God and the praying life. But you can't live your whole life bunkered in the body of Christ, bubbled in Christian community, and influence the culture that you're the only positive influence for. The world needs your presence. I was in uh, Anchorage, Alaska in June doing a uh, master's fellowship conference, and my wife and I were at a little hotel on, in, in Anchorage on Tudor Avenue, and at the corner of the parking lot, conveniently, there was a Starbucks. And I'm a Starbucks person. And so my start my day, when possible, like I did this morning on the drive down from Santa Clarita with a venti pike for Splenda and some cream. I was able to leave the hotel each morning, walk over to the Starbucks. First morning I was in Anchorage, 
headed to the Starbucks across the parking lot, I noticed something about this Starbucks that made it unique. It was adorned in rainbows. The pillars had large rainbow banners hanging from them. The drive-through was draped with a rainbow banner. Inside, it was decorated like a rainbow birthday party. Streamers and roped flags fixed in each corner. Streamers and banners, rainbow colors. Each barista but one had a rainbow mask. Now listen, they were not celebrating a promise of divine protection from the flood. They were promoting, rather, human confusion, dysfunction, rebellion, and a flood of cultural perversion. The atmosphere was relationally cold. When I pulled into the Starbucks in Santa Clarita today, the gal said, hi, I'm Tammy, what's your name? Hi, I'm Harry. Hi, Harry, what would you like today? That's how it normally goes. It's part of the Starbucks thing, neighborhood names, social community connection. Not this one. Nobody asked my name. Hardly looked in my eyes and, what would you like, sir? Fenty Pike for Splenda Creamer. Go stand by the wall. We'll call you when it's ready. I went over and stood by the wall when my coffee was ready. It wasn't, hey, Harry, coffee, Pike with Splenda. No, it was... Venti Pike for Splenda Cream. No words, no greeting, no nothing. I got my coffee, and I headed out the door, and I began to Google Christian coffee shops near me. You know why? I didn't like the vibe. I didn't like the flavor. I didn't like the message. I didn't like the culture. I wasn't even sure I liked the coffee. I just wanted to go somewhere where I enjoyed it more. And then I got convicted with this thought. Harry, you are the salt of the earth. What this is, is a neon sign of rainbows saying, corruption in need of action. This is not go find another coffee shop. This is engage this coffee shop and engage others to engage this coffee shop because they need what only you have. So on Sunday when I preached at Anchorage Grace Church, I said, listen, not worth a grain of salt means one grain is not adequate. There's a coffee shop on Tudor Avenue, a Starbucks. I don't care where you're buying your coffee now. I'm asking you for the near near future, you buy your coffee at this coffee shop. Because this coffee shop needs Christian influence. They need people to walk in, smile, and pray. And I'm not talking about pious words. I'm talking about Christian attitudes. I'm talking about Christian concern. I'm talking about Christian influence. I'm talking about the salt of the earth that you alone are. Evergreen, you're the salt of the earth right here in the San Gabriel Valley. Grace Church, where I worship, isn't the salt of the earth in this community. You are. You're the preservative that promotes Christ in this community. And you promote it by doing good, by showing a good attitude, by displaying a Christ-like witness. I sat in that coffee shop every morning and tried to pray for those baristas by name. 
That's your life. That's your influence, unless it's not. Don't bunker, don't bubble, penetratingly engage for the glory of God. Let me mention these last two for the sake of time. The third thing is you're a pleasing seasoning. Listen to, here's, listen to Job 6.6. 6. Job 6.6 6 says, Is tasteless food eaten without salt or without flavor, or is there taste in the white of an egg? The answer to that is no. No flavor. I don't care how protein-rich egg whites are. You need to add seasoning to it. Can you say amen to that? Is tasteless food eaten without salt? Answer, no. Salt is a seasoning that makes the savor satisfying. Christians are to be a positive seasoning of life. You're to bring richness and benefit to everything you're in or on. My mother used to have a canister of salt on the kitchen table, Jane's crazy mixed-up salt. It was good on everything. That's how you're to be. Not crazy and mixed up, but good on everything. If you're in a neighborhood, it ought to be a better neighborhood. If you're on a team, it ought to be a better team. You're bringing life. You're bringing hope where there is none. You're bringing comfort where they have none. You're bringing peace where they need some. You're bringing joy that they've never seen. You're bringing clarity and sense to a world that's chaotic and confusing and depressing. You're a vivid sparkle of real life. And number four, you're to be a provoker of thirst. Now listen, every Sunday, that may be overstated, but not by much, after church in Birmingham, Alabama, where I pastored up the street was New China Restaurant, and every Sunday my family gathered in my office, and we would eat Chinese food together. Sesame chicken, Mongolian delight, sesame shrimp. I'm, I'm hurting you right now, aren't I? It's lunchtime. <laughs> Do you know what I did all afternoon between the morning service and the evening service? Drank bottle after bottle of H2O. You know why? Chinese food is salty. You know what a Christian is? They're to be so salty they make people thirsty. Not for H2O, but the water of life, Jesus Christ. Your presence ought to make them thirsty for the God you know and the life you have. That's my prayer for you. Potent Christians, penetratingly present, are impactful Christians for the blessing and benefit of a world that desperately needs hope and help. Can you say amen to that? You are something. Therefore, you need to be something. And the guarantee is your life will mean something. Father, thank you for the opportunity to open your word today. Lord, there's so much that we could rehearse and say practically about how to be what we are. But Lord, we don't want to be tasteless. We want to be tasty. We want to be in the words of Paul, a a fragrance that brings life to the world in which we live. We want Christianity to not be contemptible, but respectable and credible. We want to be the kind of believers that make people thirsty for a God who is and for a salvation that saves. God, thank you for who we are. 
Help us to be what we should be. And I pray for Evergreen Baptist Church that they would become powerfully influential, practically impactful for the glory of God and the blessing of this community. They are what this community needs them to be. In Jesus' name, amen.